We are in Mark chapter 6, part 13 of the Images of Jesus series. Uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for coming tonight. I have uh, posted on Facebook a couple of times this week about how excited I am about this message. Um, it, uh, I hope that it, and I pray that it impacts you the way it's impacted me this week. Start out by telling a little story. The, uh, I don't know when it was, um, somewhere around, uh, I don't know, 1999, 2000-ish, somewhere in there, I preached the first sermon that I ever preached. Um, it was a little church in Godfrey, Illinois. Uh, at that time, it was called Bethany Baptist Church. Uh, it's got a different name now. Um, so I'm preaching a sermon, and uh, like... My parents didn't go to the church, but they showed up that night. And then, like, a bunch of my friends found out it was going to be my first sermon that I ever preached. And so they showed up, and it was like, I don't know, a church of about 100 or so. And uh, that night when I preached, there's like 140 people there. Um, just in, in 40 of those were like my friends, relatives, and whatever. And so uh, I preached, and I, I preached out First Peter, and it was all about trials. And uh, I just really, like, laid out my heart and... and uh, after the, the service was over, I'm sitting out there in front, and everybody's like, oh, that was just so good. Way to go. That was so good. And I was like, did you, did you connect with it? And they were like, yeah, it was just so good. Just so good. And we went out to dinner at Pasta House down the street at, right afterwards, and nobody really connected with the heart of what I was trying to say, but everybody was like, it was so good. They were so proud of you. You've done such a good yay. And uh, nothing ever changed in their lives. I uh, feel like anything ever happened uh, as a result of that message. And then, uh, fast forward about a year and a half, two years, I got to, to to be the youth minister at the church that I grew up in. And so, the people that I was uh, teaching, I get the, a chance to preach like three or four times a year. And every time the people that I was preaching to, the audience was like half of the people had, had had me in like Sunday school or changed my diaper and all that stuff. And so... All of the, the the senior adults in the church, after I get done preaching, oh, we're so proud of you. You've done such a good... Yeah, you... But I really felt like what I wanted to do one time in that church was go up there and say, like, just completely make no sense at all and, and like, tell jokes that I thought were really funny, act like I thought they were funny, but I knew they weren't funny, which is what I usually do anyway. Um, but I just wanted to go up there and completely and thoroughly bomb and, like... Like, not even make any sort of points at all and, like, stutter and, and not make any sense at all. Maybe I, I, I still do that. I don't think I do. Uh, but just to see what would happen if, if these people would say, hey, you did such a really good job, knowing that I completely just went up there and, you know, done something really bad up on the stage. I uh, almost said something I regretted. You guys can figure out what that is that I almost thought I said there. Um, so, uh, the point of all that is Mark chapter 6. Let's read it and then I'll, uh, I'll, I'll tell you my, my point. Uh, starting in verse 1, we're just going to read the first six verses. And he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying... Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? 
Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Trips me out when Christ marvels. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Uh, there's a, more to the point and probably a better story. Um, there's a, a, a movie, probably most of you have seen it, called Goodfellas. Uh, in the middle of this, this, this movie, Joe Pesci is this guy who's risen from a nobody to like near the top of, of the mafia whatever crime family deal. Uh, he's growing in prominence and growing in importance, and he walks into this bar. There's hardly anybody in the bar except this one guy who's been in the mafia for a really long time and seems to be an important guy. And uh, Joe Pesci started out being around these mafia types as, as a, a, a shoe shiner. And so this guy who's in a bar who's been a mafia type for a really long time says, like, is just ripping him. Like, go home and get your shine box. And over and over again, go home and get your shine box. And, and he's projecting on to Joe Pesci that you are not who you think you are. You are still who you were at the beginning. You are not a mafia guy. You have no power, no strength, no, no courage, nothing. You are a shoe shiner. And go home and get your shine box. And this is what happens. This is what these religious people are telling Jesus. You're not anybody important. You're not a strong, godly man. You are the son of Mary. You are nobody that's important. Um, I want to bring your attention to, uh, it's, it's in the, the study guides that you have, but it's also, uh, Kyle, fill that up on the screen, the, the map of, of, of the region. You see Nazareth uh, just to the, about in the center towards the left. Most of the stuff that's happening for Jesus' life is to the, the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee there in the city called Capernaum. That's where Jesus had a house and where Peter lived. And all, most of the stuff that we've talked about that's happened in the book of Mark has taken place in the city called Capernaum. But as you know, Jesus of Nazareth, he grew up in this place called Nazareth. And so after several months, uh, maybe half a year of ministry and in and around Capernaum, Jesus travels to Nazareth where this story takes place. And it's his hometown. And just like when I went back, had my friends and my family and all that stuff at this first sermon, I felt like I preached my heart out and really had a deep message. And the only anybody could do was pat me on the back. And just like when I went back to the old church, nobody can any do. The only thing people could do was pat me on the back and say, "Way to go, good job." Because in their home, in my hometown, in the place where I grew up, I was always going to be that twelve-year-old little boy. And here, Jesus, as he's speaking, as he's teaching profoundly, as he's bringing these words of of wisdom and great strength and great power, all he is to these people is that twelve-year-old little boy or that twenty-two-year-old man who, instead of go home and get your shine box, they're saying. Go home and, and, and carpentry up me a chair. Make me a chair. Make me a table. That's what's happening to, to Jesus. I, I don't want to hear what you have to say to me from God. I want you to go be who I think you are. So they're projecting an image, projecting an identity onto Jesus. And the, the identity they're projecting is that this guy is not the son of God. He's the son of Mary. So God's given identity to Jesus is that he is the son of God. The people's identity of Jesus is that he is the son of Mary. And I want to stop and, and think here. 
Who is this crowd? They are religious people. These are the religious people that Jesus is talking to and he's teaching, and he is cast, they are casting on him a, a misappropriated identity. And we can connect so deeply with that. Who are the people that, that project or cast our identities, our parents? Really cast an identity. I, I know I've, I've talked to a lot of guys who have this, this dad complex because their dad has always told them forever that you're never going to be anything. You're never going to mount anything. You're always going to be a, a bum. You're always going to be a loser. You're always never, nothing is ever going to, you can't do this. You can't uh, graduate from college. You can't do these things. You can't start a business. You can't do anything. You, you can't feel the ground ball well enough. You can't play foot, a projection of our parents onto us. And we, so many times live up to that identity. We allow the culture to project the identity onto us. And this is what's happening here with Jesus. This religious culture is trying to project an identity onto Jesus. Who else? We have our siblings sometimes project an identity onto us. Our boss, our friends, our church. I was guilty as a youth pastor of projecting an identity onto students. If I thought you were a troublemaker, if I thought you were not paying attention... A lot of times, I wouldn't pay any attention to you. I projected an identity on our churches can so easily, the people around us can project an identity onto ourselves, and we live up to that identity. But at the heart, at the core of it, Jesus has an identity set aside for you, and that's what he wants to teach us. And at the heart of it is that he has our identity, and we can have an identity projected onto us. But the thing that I really want to think through and and consider is... Our past is, is a huge, huge projector of identity. Because of, of who I was in high school, because of who I was in college, because of who I was last year, because of who I was even last week, I can't live up to the identity that Christ has for me. And I want you to, to, to stop and, and think and maybe even jot down what things in your life, I hope I've triggered stuff in your mind, who is projecting an identity different from the identity that Christ is projecting onto you? Our identity is, is as a child of God, just like Jesus. He is the Son of God. We, because of His finished work, our identity is found solely and completely in Him. We, our identity is that we are a child of God. We are children of the living God. That is our identity. But who is it that's projecting an identity onto you that you need to push away, push beside, and, and get rid of? Because at the heart of it, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says this, this is your identity. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship is our identity. We are God's workmanship. And that word is the exact same word that means poetry. Jesus, God in heaven, crafted us together, wrote a beautiful, perfect love story poem and it's us. And God has, has, we are God's finished poetry. We are God's artwork. We are the, the craftsmanship of God. This is our identity. And it's, it's, it's vital. And I wanna, uh, I wanna show a, a little, little clip and talk about it in, in a second. But think through this understanding of, of identity. And you are a child of God and do not allow anything else to project that identity onto you. Hit that, Kyle. Religion is about me. 
my good works, my deeds, my efforts. Christianity, the good news, the gospel, it's about Jesus. God loves me. God knows me. God cares for me. All my sins are forgiven. My salvation is secured. My life can change, will change, is changing. Because Jesus is my mediator. He's my sacrifice. He's my scapegoat. He forgives my sins, takes them away, connects me to the Father, lives to intercede for me. He's also my feast to booze. He'll never leave me nor forsake me, even though I'm a a disobedient person. He's never going to give up on me. And he's going to walk with me all the way to the end, to the land of promise known as heaven. What that leads to is humble, confident joy. The greatest gospel verse in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin, sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Let me unpack those 15 Greek words. He, God, made Jesus sin. What do you mean He made Jesus sin? Only in one sense. He treated Him as if He had committed every sin ever committed by every person who would ever believe, though in fact He committed none of them. Hanging on the cross, he was wholly harmless, undefiled. Hanging on the cross, he was a spotless lamb. He was never for a split second a sinner. He is holy God on the cross. But God is treating him, I'll put it more practically, as if he lived my life. God punished Jesus for my sin, turns right around and treats me as if I lived his life. That's the great doctrine of substitution. And on that doctrine turned the whole reformation of the church. That is the heart of the gospel. And what you get is complete forgiveness covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When he looks at the cross, he sees you. When he looks at you, he sees Christ. It is one thing to be forgiven when you are unrighteous. It is a glorious thing. Let us never minimize the preciousness that God forgives sins because of the work of Christ on the cross. Forgiveness, too, would be an outrage were it not for the cross. But I cannot escape the exceeding wonder that not only does God look upon a guilty person in the courtroom and exercise clemency and forgive him and say, you're guilty, I forgive you, go and sin no more. But he also, beyond all imagination, looks upon this guilty sinner and does not just say, you're guilty, I forgive you. He says, you're not guilty. I mean, forgiveness is understandable. Just a little bit understandable. We kind of had some way to get our hands around forgiveness. You let it go. You don't hold it against them. But this, look me right in the face, John Piper, right in the face, sinner though I am, and say, righteous. Three great preachers of our day, of our generation, Proclaiming our identity and who we are in Christ. I um, hope to have that up on, on our website at some point uh, later on this week. Um, so you can go back and listen to it again. There's so much depth there. There's so much wisdom that's there. But at the heart of it is this. John MacArthur is the guy who, who spoke in the middle there. It was Mark Driscoll, John MacArthur, and John Piper. MacArthur teaches in the middle there. And he, he says... When God looks upon us, He sees Christ. 
do not allow any other projection onto your life of your identity but that. Christ substituted Himself. Christ lived our life. God looks at, looked at Him as if He lived our life and He looks at us as if we lived Christ's life. And that is the, the end of it. That's, that's who we are. That is our identity. And any other representation of that is a false projection that culture places on us. Our parents, our friends, our church, our society, our religious culture, our non-religious culture, all of that stuff is projecting a, a, an image or an identity onto us that is simply not true. At the heart of it is the last words of John Piper. God looks at us and says, righteous. Period. That is your identity. Live there. Live in that identity. And Let's look now back at the Scripture. Verse 4, how did Jesus deal with people looking upon Him with a false identity? They looked upon Him, you're the son of a carpenter, you're the the son of Mary, you are nothing special, nothing important. What's Christ's response to that? And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus said, response to them saying, you're nothing important. He says, I'm a prophet. And a prophet, what he's speaking there, what those people are hearing is, I have the words of God for your life. If you don't pay attention to me, you're a moron. You don't see what's happening here. This is what Christ is speaking to those people. They say to him, you are nothing special. And Jesus says to them, I have the words of God. Pay attention. But they don't because a prophet is without honor in his hometown among those who he's familiar with. Just like if I could have had the, the most profound sermon that was ever preached, that first sermon that I preached, I was never going to get through to these people because I was that 12-year-old little Ricky, sweet little boy up there. But at the heart of it, God has spoken into you, given you a purpose and a mission on this world and, and in this world and in this church even, in this culture, to, to speak to be His prophet, to bring His words, to bring His kingdom to this place. And anytime anybody puts a projection of any identity other than that, it's a lie. And Jesus' response is, I am a prophet. I am the Son of God. I am here to speak to you what God intends for you to hear. That's Christ's specific pushback to them. They say you're worth nothing. He says, I have God's words. Listen. Pay attention. Then He continues. He says, I don't accept your identity of me. Then he continues, verse 5, And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. The ESV study Bible says this, Jesus will not force his miracles on a hostile, skeptical audience. That is, people who don't understand who he is, that he is the Son of God. If you don't understand, he's not going to force his miracles on a hostile and skeptical audience. Continues, it stands in contradiction to the character and the will of Jesus to heal where there's a fundamental rejection of Him. The people's familiarity with Him made Him just another guy and not a prophet. Changed their understanding of what His identity is to them. Uh, it's, it's this thought that brings us to the, 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 the final point for us. It, our identity, and now I want to talk about faith and what faith means. And he, Verse 6, And He marveled, because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Jesus marveled at their unbelief. And, and at the heart of this, the, this unbelief is a lack of faith. And you've probably heard me say before that faith 
is really where trust and surrender come together. Faith is the point where trust and surrender come together. I want to illustrate that like I, I haven't illustrated that before since I've, I've trying to, to teach about faith. Um, I'm going to tell the story of, of Abraham and Isaac. Um, you all know the story. Abraham, God came and he promised to, to Abraham that I'm going to make you a father of many nations and, and your children will be like the, the grains of sand on, the, on, a, on, on a beach and, and just this massive, huge thing that God is going to promise. And he's going to bring his promised one through his line. That's what, what God promises Abraham way back in the day. Fast forward 60, 70 years, and Abraham is 100 years old, and he has no children, and his wife Sarah is barren. She can't have kids, and she, they're both over 100 years old, and Isaac is born to them. A miracle of God, Isaac is born to them. The first miracle is that he, he connects with Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you great, the father of, of my nation, the father of, of all of my people are going to come through your line. And then Abraham probably doubts it, probably doesn't have faith, probably doesn't trust, probably doesn't surrender to what God is, and then... Isaac is born to his barren wife, Sarah. Fast forward a few years later, God appears to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice your son, Isaac. And I have deeply connected with this story as now that I have a son, six-year-old boy. I would be... There are a lot of things that I'd be willing to die for. There are... I don't know that there is a thing that I'd be willing to allow my son to die for, let alone kill him. Abraham goes with Isaac, willing to kill him. He takes him to the place where they're going to have the sacrifice. He builds the altar of wood. And Isaac says, where is the lamb that we're going to sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide. And he builds this altar, and he begins, and he ties his son down on the altar, and he raises a knife to kill his son. I, I can't even begin to fathom the, the pain in the arms and in the life and in the emotion of Abraham here. And God says, stop. I know that you will, will go to the links to please me. I know that you will go to the links to be obedient, to have faith. That is trust. That is surrender. That is faith. Do you see the, the trust and the surrender? I would be willing to die for some of you. I would be willing to die for, all, to, for to us. I would not be willing for any of you to kill my son. Faith is where trust and surrender meet. And this thought, this understanding, makes me think about idols. And there are things in our lives that we place above God, that we won't surrender to God. When I think about faith, I think about the things in my life that I have a hard time surrendering to God. What an idol is. In your bulletin, there's a, a, a web address, a link to a, a Tim Keller sermon that's fantastic about idols. If you have free time this week, listen to it. It's, it's amazing. It's through the Gospel Coalition's website, and it's talking about idols. But ultimately, an idol is something that we place above God. That we, have, we attach a higher value on this idol than we attach to God. It's really, really hard for me to make my wife not an idol to make my church not an idol, to make my children not an idol. But ultimately, if I am right, if I am placed perfectly and placed rightly, my wife, my church, my kids, my family, all that stuff are secondary to God. In order to completely surrender, in order to have true faith, I have to surrender them to Him. 
Think about, think through the idols in your life. I hope that something immediately comes to your mind to think through that this is something that I struggle with being an idol in my life. That I place its value higher than God. You're not fully surrendered there. You can't ever have the faith that God intends for you to have if there's something you won't surrender to Him. It's a block to the total surrender and total faith. And it is... It keeps us from having this sort of faith and brings us back to this He marveled because of their unbelief. So, faith is the ignition to God's power. Faith is the ignition to God's power. Think about last week. We talked about two people last week. We talked about the woman who's not named, who had this bloody discharge for for 12 years, and and she was made unclean. And all of the religious society thought she was unclean. She was probably divorced from her husband, probably had no intimate relationships of any kind because of her uncleanness. And her faith ignited the power of, of Christ, and He healed her instantly. No more blood. She got to get back into life, get back into relationships, got to have what God intended for her. And her faith was what ignited that power. And then Jairus, the, the, the ruler of the synagogue, the main dude who was in charge, who had been present at meetings trying to kill and trying to trap Jesus, now has faith. He, he was brought to desperation because his daughter was dead. His daughter was dying and then wound up dead. And Christ came because of his faith, because of his trust, and his surrender. God placed him to a point where he didn't have to give him his daughter because his daughter was already gone. And the desperation that he had brought him to a place of faith where trust and surrender meet, faith comes, and where faith is, the, the ignition of the power of God is turned. The, back in the, the second or third chapter of Mark, remember the, the, the man who got lifted into the, it was Peter's house, got lifted in through the roof to Jesus so he could get to him. And his faith ignited the power of God and he was healed. I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 11 of bits and pieces of this that are attached to Abraham and, uh, and Sarah. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. The Bible's definition of faith. Hebrews 11.2 For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to go to the place where he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He trusted and surrendered his life. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Abraham went when he was tested and offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The picture again of of God's word speaking of the faith of Abraham and the faith of Sarah to speak how they ignited the power and strength of our God. Matthew 17, 20, And he said to them, Because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed, tiny, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. The power of faith. Mark 2, 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. The power of faith to heal. Matthew fifteen twenty eight. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great 
is your faith. Exclamation point. Great is your faith, Jesus says. Be be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The power, trust, and surrender and faith healed. Mark 10.52 And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him along the way. In Luke, to the centurion, Jesus says this, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. He was amazed at this centurion. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such a faith. In other words, he says to religious people about an irreligious person, I have not seen faith among all the religious people like this guy. I have not seen trust and surrender like I see in this guy. And it ignited the power of God. Trust and surrender ignite the power of God time after time after time in Scripture. Just before his death, giving leadership to Peter. Peter was the one who, who was going to be the leader of the church. God, at the beginning of time, planned out this way that he was going to redeem his people. And it was going to be Christ was going to come and he was going to die and live a perfect life and disciple these 12 guys. And among these 12 guys, the one leader was this guy named Peter. So the importance of, of the whole of his redemptive plan of all of mankind of history rested upon Peter. And Jesus is about to die. He's about to hand over the keys to the church to this guy. Vastly, hugely, massively important instance in all of history is what's going to happen to Peter as he leaves. And this is Jesus' words to him. The, the whole redemptive plan of all of mankind of history relies upon this, this guy. And what does Jesus pray for this guy? Luke 2.22, Luke 22, verse 32. But I prayed for you that your, that your faith may not fail. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. All of the redemption of the history of mankind, every church that will ever exist, the Word of God is reliant upon Peter. And Jesus, before His death, one of the last things He says to Peter is that, I pray that your faith will not fail. And I have taken this and, and prayed this for myself. I've prayed this for you guys. And if you're ever wondering what to pray for a, a spiritual leader, a pastor of any kind now or in the future or, or anything, pray that their faith will not fail. That's what Christ prayed for Peter. It's who he's going to build his church on and, and, and what he prays for him is that his faith may not fail. If you're looking for something to pray for your spiritual guidance leaders, your pastor, me for, pray that my faith will not fail. Pray that their faith will not fail. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working itself through love. What does circumcision, uncircumcision mean? In Galatians, what's happening here is Paul comes to a, a, the region of Galatia, preaches to them, changes the hearts of all these people, and then these Judaizers, these religious people come and say, hey, that's great that you accept Christ as your Savior, and you have to place your faith in Him, but you also have to do all these religious activities. And Paul says, no, that's not true. And what he's speaking to these guys here is this. For in Jesus Christ, religion counts for nothing. Only faith. Your religion counts for nothing. Only faith. It's not... Go back to our Abraham and Isaac story. It wasn't obedience that unlocked the key to, to, to the power of God. Go back to all those stories that I read about the healings and and. Every piece of Scripture where, where Christ comes and heals or changes hearts or changes lives it has nothing to do with obedience and solely to do with faith. Your religion is worthless apart from faith. 
Faith is the ignition, and Jesus is attracted to faith. Think about that word, those, that simple phrase. Jesus is attracted to faith. This great God, full of power, full of might, is attracted to faith. So I want to encourage you to, to get faith all that you can. God has, has given it to us. So I want to close tonight with this one simple question. How do you increase your faith? How do you make it greater? That's fantastic that the, Jesus is attracted to faith and that faith is the ignition that ignites the power of God. What does that mean? How do we, have, how do we increase our faith? Luke 17.5, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. In Matthew, Jesus says, whatever you ask in faith, you have faith. James, in his epistle, says, if you ask it, ask it in faith, it will be given. Very simply, this is not rocket science, not big, huge, theological, have to go to seminary stuff. If you want to increase your faith, ask. Like Jeff said as he was leading us in worship, if, if you want God to increase your faith, ask Him for it. Very simple. God, increase my faith, please. Pray with the desperation that brings you to that point, that brought the Jairus, that his, his daughter was dead. Pray for, for the faith that these guys had. You are my only hope, the only desperate... God, give me faith. Increase my faith. Strengthen my faith. The second way to increase our faith. Romans 10:17 So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Very simply, faith comes from knowing Jesus and God has given us his word, the word of God spoken to us. If you want to increase your faith, study scripture. Meditate on it. Look at at people that encounter Christ and and he marvels at their faith. Study that, meditate on it, wrestle with it, chew on it, study it, read books about scripture. Hear men preach about Scripture. We ought to be listening all the time to great... We have a, a great... We're living in a, in a generation where we can listen to the time we want. Listen to them expound Scripture. Tear it apart for us. And therefore, increase our faith. Get on iTunes. Subscribe to, to great... If you want to find out some guys you want to subscribe to, come to me and I'll, I'll tell you some great guys to, to connect with. And listen to them preach all the time. Completely devour yourself. Give yourself holy to the Word of God because so faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. How do you increase your faith? Pray for it and study the Scriptures. I want to close with, with three, with four little statements here. The church is the vehicle that God has chosen to reach the world. The church is the vehicle that God has chosen to reach the world. People are the church. We are the church. Did you see that? We are the vehicle that God has chosen to bring His kingdom to the world. In a fractured world that's messed up, that doesn't act right in relationships. There are broken relationships all over. I love my wife desperately, but there's a fracture in our relationship. It's never perfect. It's, it's, there's always something. I always get aggravated about stuff I shouldn't get aggravated about. I always get aggravated at God about stuff I don't, shouldn't get aggravated about because there's a fracture in me. Relationships will never be perfect without the kingdom of God. And God has come to bring us a little taste, a little piece 
of the kingdom so that we can understand it, we can appreciate it, we can come to grips with who we are. At the core of it is a brokenness, but God has come to restore relationships. And the vehicle that He has chosen to bring His kingdom is the church. And the church is people. God has called me and you to be on mission in this this community, in this culture. We are the vehicle, we are the church, and God has called us to be on mission here in this place, in this time. He has called us to bring the kingdom of God to North County. And faith is the ignition. We ought to be paying attention to that. We've, God has laid it out for us in His Word here. That's why we are studying the life of Christ. We can see what He was about. And what He was about was restoring the kingdom. And He spoke the words, Faith brings it. Trust and surrender bring the kingdom of God. It ignites my power. Have faith. And the way to do that is to study Scripture, to follow Christ, see what He was doing, listen to what He was about, and pray that we would have it. For us to reach this culture, we have to have faith. We have to study. We have to dive deep into His Word, and we have to ask God with desperation to, to give us this sort of faith. Lastly, pray with desperation that God would strengthen your faith. Pray the desperation that God would strengthen my faith. We live in the Word of Christ, seeking to learn, seeking to trust Him for all that He is, to surrender to Him for the Word of God. Let's pray. God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the identity that You've given to us, Father. I pray that that through the course of of this last hour, God, that you would keep us from being distracted by anything, but help us to to understand and come to grips with these two simple thoughts, that our identity is wrapped and found in you. And any projection onto us that's apart from a Son of God, apart from a, a, a filled with the Holy Spirit, powerful Son of yours, It's a lie, and it's distracting, and keeps us from our mission, and keeps us from all that we can be. God, teach us, show us our identity, and show us how it's wrapped up in you, that you see us as Christ. You see us, as John Piper reminded us, righteous. Allow us to live in that. And then, God, allow us to fully comprehend, fully understand this concept of faith, that you have called us to reach this time and this place and this culture, and you want to connect our hearts, and it starts and ends with faith, God. It has so little, so nothing to do with our obedience and so everything to do with our faith. God, teach us that. Teach us at the core of that. God, raise up people within this body that have the gift of faith and allow them to plug in and speak and have a loud voice, God. May your voice be louder than any other, God. Teach us how to surrender. Teach us how to trust. God, we beg of you with desperation to give us faith, God. And we beg of you with desperation to bring us to a place where we would dive into Scripture and see all that it is and allow you to ignite the power of our hearts, ignite the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we might live a life on mission for you, God. I thank you so much for your perfect Son, Jesus Christ, and the faith that He has given us to ignite our hearts to even walk towards You in the first place, God. I thank You for His finished work. It's in His name that I pray. Amen.